Lesson 14 for September 23 to 29. Boasting in the Cross. Sabbath afternoon, September 23. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to the end of this quarter's lessons in the book of Galatians, and we've studied these lessons right back in 1964 and in 1983 and 1990 and 2011 and again this year, 2017. And each time we look, we find more there that tells us of your great love for us and assures us of our salvation. We pray that as we complete this series of lessons this week, that you'll be with us and bless us each one. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our memory text for today is Galatians chapter 6 and 14. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Let's read that again. Galatians 6 verse 14. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. This study of Galatians has been intense. That is because the letter itself is intense. Knowing Paul's calling, knowing the truth of what he preached, after all, as he said numerous times, that truth came from the Lord— Paul wrote with the inspired passion of the Old Testament prophets of an Isaiah, a Jeremiah, a Hosea. Just as they pleaded with the people of God in their time to turn away from their error, Paul here is doing the same with those in his time. We can see this similarity is true when considering that no matter how different the immediate circumstances were, In the end, the words of Jeremiah could just as easily apply to the Galatians as they did to those in Jeremiah's day. Thus saith the Lord, we read in Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glorieth glory in this that he understandeth and knoweth me, that I am the Lord which exercise loving-kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, saith the Lord. Nowhere do our glorious human wisdom, our riches, or our might appear more clearly in all their futility and vanity than before the cross of Christ. The focus of Paul's letter to his erring flock in Galatia. Sunday, September 24, Paul's Own Hand Question. Compare Paul's closing remarks in Galatians six eleven to 18 to the final remarks he makes in his other letters. In what way is the ending of Galatians similar to and different from them? So, first of all, we'll read Galatians chapter 6, verses 11 through to 18. See with what large letters I have written to you with my own hand. 
as many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these would compel you to be circumcised, only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For not even those who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised, that they may boast in your flesh. But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. And at the end of Romans, chapter 16, verses 24 to 27, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest, and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations, according to the commandment of the everlasting God, for obedience to the faith, to God alone wise, be glory through Jesus Christ for ever. Amen. And at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 19 to 24. The churches of Asia greet you. Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord, with the church that is in their house. All the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. The salutation with my own hand, Paul's. If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. O Lord, come. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. And Second Corinthians chapter 13, verses 11 to 14. Therefore I write these things being absent, lest being present I should use sharpness according to the authority which the Lord has given me for edification and not for destruction. Finally, brethren, Farewell, become complete, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Ephesians chapter 6 and verses 23 to 24. Peace to the brethren, and love with faith, from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. And then Philippians chapter 4 verses 20 to 23. Now to our God and Father be glory for ever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. And Ephesians chapter 4 verses 15 to 18. 
But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk, in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. And First Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 to 28. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who called you is faithful, who also will do it. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. And Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 13 to 18. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him, that he may be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. The Lord be with you all. The salutation of Paul with my own hand, which is a sign in every epistle, so I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Paul's closing remarks are not always uniform, but a number of common elements appear in them. One, Greetings to specific individuals. Two, a final exhortation. Three, a personal signature. And four, a closing benediction. When these typical features are compared to Paul's final remarks in Galatians, two significant differences appear. First, unlike many of Paul's letters, Galatians contains no personal greetings. Why? As with the absence of the traditional thanksgiving at the beginning of the letter, this is probably a further indication of the strained relationship between Paul and the Galatians. Paul is polite, but formal. Second, we must remember that it was Paul's custom to dictate his letters to a scribe, as we can read in Romans 16.22. Well, let's do that. Romans 16 verse 22, I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, greet you in the Lord. Then, after finishing, Paul often would take the pen himself and write a few brief words with his own hand to end the letter, as we see in 1 Corinthians 16.21. The salutation with my own hand, Paul's. In Galatians, however, Paul deviates from his practice. When he takes the pen from the scribe, Paul is still so concerned with the circumstances in Galatia that he ends up writing more instead. He simply cannot put the pen down until he pleads with the Galatians once more to turn from their foolish ways. In Galatians 6.11, Paul stresses that he wrote the letter with large letters. See with what large letters I have written to you with my own hand? We really don't know why. Some have speculated that Paul was not referring to the size of the letters, 
but to their misshapen form. They suggest that perhaps Paul's hands were either so crippled from persecution or gnarling from tent-making that he could not form his letters with precision. Others believe his comments provide further evidence of his poor eyesight. Though both views are possible, it seems far less speculative to conclude simply that Paul was intentionally writing with large letters in order to underscore and re-emphasise his point, similar to the way we put emphasis on important words or concept by underlining it, putting it in italics, or writing it in capital letters. Whatever the reason... Paul certainly wanted the readers to heed his warning and admonitions. Monday, September 25, Boasting in the Flesh Question. Read Galatians chapter 6, verses 12 and 13. What is Paul saying in these verses? Galatians 6, beginning at verse 12. As many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these would compel you to be circumcised, only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For not even those who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Although Paul has hinted previously about the agenda and motivation of his opponents, his remarks in Galatians 6.12.13 are the first explicit comments he makes about his opponents. Galatians 1 reads, Which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. And in Galatians 4.17, they zealously court you, but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you, that you may be zealous for them. He describes them as wanting to make a good showing in the flesh, as it says in the ESV. The phrase, a good showing, in Greek, literally means to put on a good face. In fact, the word for face is the same in Greek as the word for an actor's mask. And this word was even used figuratively to refer to the role played by an actor. In other words, Paul is saying that these people were like actors seeking the approval of an audience. In a culture based on honour and shame, conformity was essential. Those teaching the errors appear to have been seeking to improve their own honour rating as a display for their fellow Jews in Galatia and other Jewish Christians back in Jerusalem. Paul makes an important point about one of their motives, the desire to avoid persecution. Though persecution can certainly be understood in its more dramatic forms involving physical abuse, it can be just as damaging even in its more mild forms of harassment and exclusion. Paul and other fanatical zealots in Judea had once carried out the former type, but the latter also had its effect on Christians. The Jewish leaders, the Jewish religious leaders, had significant political influence in many areas. They had the official sanction of Rome, 
Hence, many Jewish believers were eager to maintain good relations with them. By circumcising Gentiles and teaching them to observe the Torah, the troublemakers in Galatia could find a point of common ground with the local Jews. Not only would this allow the troublemakers to maintain friendly contact with the synagogues, but they could even strengthen their ties with the Jewish believers in Jerusalem, who had a growing suspicion about the work being done with the Gentiles, as we read in Acts 21, verses 20 and 21. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. But they have been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. No doubt, too, all these acts could have made their witness to the Jews more effective. Whatever situation Paul has in mind, his meaning is clear as he says in 2 Timothy 3.12, all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And so to finish the day, think through the reason these people had for teaching their errors. It sounds pretty reasonable, all things considered. What should this tell us about how even the best of motives can lead us astray if we aren't careful? When was the last time you ended up doing wrong things for the right motives? Tuesday, September 26, Boasting in the Cross. Our text for today is Galatians chapter 6 and verse 14. But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. Having exposed the motives that prompted some to insist on circumcision, Paul presents his gospel message to the Galatians one final time, though only in summary form. For Paul, the gospel is based on two fundamental tenets. One, the centrality of the cross, as we saw in that verse just now, Galatians 6.14, and two, the doctrine of justification in the following verse. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything, but a new creation. In today's study, the focus is on the former. Because we live in the 21st century, it is difficult for us to comprehend the shock that Paul's comments about the cross in Galatians 6.14 originally conveyed. Today, the cross of Christ is a common and cherished symbol that evokes positive feelings for most people. In Paul's day, however, the cross was not something to boast in but something to be despised. The Jews found the idea of a crucified Messiah offensive, and Romans found crucifixion so repulsive that it was not even mentioned as a form of punishment suitable for a Roman citizen. The contempt with which the ancient world looked upon the cross of Christ clearly is seen in the earliest drawing of the crucifixion on record. Dating back to the early 2nd century, a piece of ancient graffiti depicts the crucifixion of a man with the head of a donkey. 
Below the cross, and adjacent to a drawing of a man with his hands raised in worship, an inscription reads, Alexander worships his God. The point is clear. The cross of Christ is deemed ridiculous. It is in this context that Paul boldly declares that he can boast in nothing other than the cross of Christ. Question. What difference did the cross of Christ make in Paul's relationship to the world? Well, we're going to read those texts that tell us about that. The first is Galatians 6.14. But God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. And Romans 6, verses 1 through to 6. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. And Romans 12, verses 1 through to 8, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. And Philippians chapter 3 and verse 8. Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ. The cross of Christ changes everything for the believer. It challenges us not only to re-evaluate how we view ourselves, but also how we relate to the world. The world, this present evil age and all that it entails, stands in opposition to God, as we read in 1 John 2.16. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. Because we have died with Christ, the world no longer has the enslaving power it once held over us, and the old life that we once lived for the world is no longer. 
Following Paul's analogy, the break between the believer and the world should be as if the two died to each other. And so to finish the day, what has the cross done to affect your relationship to the world? What difference has it made in your life? How differently do you live now than you did before giving yourself to the Lord who died for you? Wednesday, September 27, A New Creation Having emphasised the centrality of the cross of Christ to the Christian life, Paul now emphasises the second fundamental tenet of his gospel message, justification by faith. As we have seen all quarter, Paul basically has pitted circumcision against the gospel. Yet, he's not against the practice itself. Paul has made several strong statements about circumcision, as we see in Galatians 5, 2-4. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. But... He does not want the Galatians to conclude that being uncircumcised is more pleasing to God than being circumcised. That is not his point. Because one can be just as legalistic about what one does as about what one doesn't do. Spiritually speaking, the issue of circumcision by itself is irrelevant. True religion is not rooted in external behaviour, but in the condition of the human heart. As Jesus himself said, a person can look wonderful on the outside, but be spiritually rotten on the inside, as we read in Matthew 23, verse 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but indeed are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Question. What does it mean to be a new creation. Our text is Galatians 6 verse 15, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation, and 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, all things have passed away, behold, all things have become new. How have you yourself experienced what this means? Katitsis, K-T-I-S-I-S, is the Greek word translated creation. It can refer either to an individual creature, as it does in Hebrews 4.13, or to all the created order itself in Romans 8.22. In either case, the word implies the action of a creator. This is Paul's point. Becoming a new creature is not something that can be brought about by any human effort, whether by circumcision or anything else. Jesus refers to this process as the new birth in John chapter 3, verses 5 to 8. It is the divine act 
in which God takes a person who is spiritually dead and breathes spiritual life into him. This is yet another metaphor to describe the saving act that Paul typically describes as justification by faith. Paul refers to this new creation experience in detail in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. In this verse, Paul explains that becoming a new creation means more than just a change in our status in the books of heaven. It brings about a change in our everyday lives. As Timothy George notes in his book Galatians, page 438, it involves the whole process of conversion, the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit leading to repentance and faith, the daily process of mortification and vivification, continual growth in holiness leading to eventual conformity to the image of Christ. End of quote. Becoming a new creature, however, is not what justifies us. This radical change is instead the unmistakable manifestation of what it means to be justified. Thursday, September 28. Final Remarks Question. Paul bestows blessings on those who, he says, follow his rule. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 16. Given the context, what rule do you think Paul is talking about? Let's read that verse, Galatians 6, verse 16. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. The word translated as rule literally refers to a straight rod or bar used by masons or carpenters for measuring. The word eventually took on a figurative meaning referring to the rules or standards by which a person evaluates something. For example, when people talk about the New Testament canon, they are referring to the 27 books in the New Testament, which is seen as authoritative for determining both the belief and practice of the church. Therefore, if a teaching does not measure up to what is found in these books, it is not accepted. Question. What are the marks of the Lord Jesus that Paul bears on his body? What does he mean when he writes that no one should trouble him because of them? Might Galatians 6.14 help answer this question? Galatians 6.14 reads, But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And we're asked to compare this with Galatians chapter 6 and verse 17. From now on, let no one trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. And 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 10, always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. And 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 to 29. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. 
I am more in labours, more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews five times I received forty stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, Besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. Who is weak, and I am not weak? Who is made to stumble, and I do not burn with indignation? The word mark comes from the Greek word stigmata, from which the English word stigma also is derived. Paul may be referring to the common practice of the branding of slaves with the insignia of their master as a form of identification, or to the practice in some mystery religions where a devotee branded himself or herself as a sign of devotion. In any case, by the marks of the Lord Jesus, Paul doubtless refers to the scars left upon his body by persecution and hardship in those texts we've just read. His opponents now insist on compelling his Gentile converts to accept the mark of circumcision as a token of their submission to Judaism. And we're in a quote in the Seventh-day Adventist Bible Commentary, Volume 6, page 989. But Paul has marks that indicate whose slave he has become, and for him there is no other loyalty than to Christ. The scars Paul has received from his enemies while in the service of his master spoke most eloquently of his devotion to Christ. And so, to finish today, what are the marks, physical or otherwise, that you have because of your faith in Jesus? In other words, what has your faith cost you? Friday, September 29. From Manuscript 56, written in 1899 and published in the Seventh-day Venice Bible Commentary, Volume 6, page 1113, we read, The cross of Calvary challenges and will finally vanquish every earthly and hellish power. In the cross all influence centres, and from it all influence goes forth. It is the greatest centre of attraction, for on it Christ gave up his life for the human race. This sacrifice was offered for the purpose of restoring man to his original perfection. Yea, more, it was offered to give him an entire transformation of character, making him more than a conqueror. Those who in the strength of Christ overcome the great enemy of God and man will occupy a position in the heavenly courts above angels who have never fallen. Christ declares, I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. If the cross does not find an influence in its favour, it creates an influence. 
Through generation succeeding generation, the truth for this time is revealed as present truth. Christ on the cross was the medium whereby mercy and truth met together and righteousness and peace kissed each other. This is the means that is to move the world. End of quote. And that brings us to our four discussion questions for this week. One, what significance do you find in the fact that Paul both begins and ends his letter with reference to God's grace? Let's look at that. Galatians 1 verse 3, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Then he finishes Galatians in Galatians 6.18, brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Question 2. In light of Paul's statement about having been crucified to the world in Galatians 6.14, what relationship should Christians have with the world today? How should Christians relate to issues dealing with the environment, racism, abortion, etc., if they have died to the world? 3. How does a person know if he or she has experienced the new creation that Paul writes about? 4. Based on what you have learned this quarter, how would you summarise Paul's views on the following topics? The law, works of law, justification by faith, the old and the new covenants, the work of Christ, and the nature of the Christian life. And to summarise this week's lesson, true religion does not consist of outward behaviour alone, but in the condition of the heart. When the heart is surrendered to God, a person's life will more and more reflect the character of Christ as he or she grows in faith. The heart must be subdued by Christ. When that happens, all else will follow. Inside Story Our mission story for this week is titled Match Made in Heaven, Part 3 and I guess it has to be the last part because this is the last Sabbath of the quarter. You should pray very hard about it, Marina said. This is a serious situation. Then Marina added a surprising comment. Maybe I can help your parents to find an Adventist man. I know a few people. Would you really? Sahana asked. That would be wonderful. Sahana spoke with her mother about her concerns. Mother, I want to marry an Adventist man. All these different churches are really the same, her mother said, and I don't know any Adventist men. My friend Marina can help you find an Adventist husband for me, Sahana said. Well, yes, if Marina has someone in mind, we will certainly consider him her mother replied. Marina knew that Pastor Michael would be married soon. She knew that many Adventist young people would come to his wedding. Marina learned that Abby, a young man from some distance away, was coming and would stay with Marina and her family. She invited Sahana to meet this young man in her home. Sahana prayed earnestly that God would lead her to a fine Adventist young man, and She felt the Holy Spirit's assurance that he had heard her prayers. When the young man arrived, Sahana was pleased that he was so courteous and handsome. 
She learned that he was a software engineer. The two talked together in Marina's home for several hours. Sahana's parents met Abby and also were impressed by him. After the pastor's wedding, Abby returned home and Sahana did not speak to him again. Two days later, Abby's mother requested a photo of Sahana. Two months later, Abby's parents met Sahana and her parents. The meeting went well. When Abby's parents returned home, his mother told her son, She is a dream girl, the girl I would choose for you. Wedding arrangements began. When Sahana's school contract ended, she was baptised by Abby's father. Three months later, the couple was married. Their wedding day marked the second time they had seen each other, as is the custom in arranged marriages. Though they were all but strangers at their wedding, Sahana and Abby are convinced that God led them to each other. They have settled into a life together with God as the centre of their home and now have two children of their own. Abby and Sahana Kurian live in Hosha, India, where Abby is a software engineer. This lesson has been read by Dr. Percy Harold in the studios of Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired. It is brought to you by the Sabbath School Department and through the services of Hope Channel. Remember, God is always faithful.